All right, and that is recording at my end. Perfect. I'm recording here. Ian Strange, how are you? <laughs> good, good. Round two. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, was, I was wondering whether or not we'd come clean on the fact that this is the second time that we've actually done this interview. If you like, I can definitely pretend. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Radio Juxtapose podcast. I hope the festive period was kind to you all and you find yourself refreshed, recharged and ready for 2023. My name is Doug Gillen and on today's episode, we're in conversation with the Australian multidisciplinary artist, Ian Strange. We found out in 97 that What Love was going to be redeveloped. All of a sudden, what love doesn't exist anymore. Ian first made a name for himself in the mid-aughts as a graffiti artist under the name of Kid Zoom. His reputation was built on the back of these high-quality freehand character pieces he was doing on buildings and a series of repurposed bus shelter advertisings, placing him in amongst a number of talented artists really rising in the scene at the time. A decade later and his practice looks a little bit different today, a far stretch from the graffiti roots he emerged from. The quick ephemeral sketches have now been replaced with conceptually considered large-scale productions that reimagine the concept of the word home and the many different shapes that takes. I reckon this was the best community going around anywhere. And the government just destroyed it. A fascination with rural suburbia that began with the 2011 project Home in Australia has taken him across the rest of the country and over the US in a continuously evolving exploration of identity, territory and the sacred spaces that shape us. I'm going to come clean with you right now. Uh, this was actually the second time we've had to record this interview. The audio quality in the first run just wasn't where we wanted it to be and I didn't want to start 2023 off on that foot. And I'm really glad that we did it this way because every so often we get one of those interviews where you just kind of finish it, you put down the mic and you get that little moment where you're like, yeah, that's a good one. Might just be the start of the year, but this already feels like it's going to be one of my favourites. Let's get straight into it right now with Ian Strange right here on Radio Juxtapose. So where are you just now? Uh, I'm back in Western Australia. When we last spoke, I was in snowy Ohio, and now I'm in very, very hot um, Western Australia for a week. When you say Western Australia, what does that mean? Oh, that means that means Perth, my hometown. How does it feel kind of going back there then? does it? Do you go back much? Well, I hadn't usually, but I had been back for uh, 18 months over COVID. Um, so this is where I kind of locked down and did the whole sort of COVID stretch here. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with being back here. Um, uh, but obviously started traveling again once things opened up. I feel like I know Perth a lot better than I than I have in the past. I'd been away for a long time. Um, and only sort of come back for occasional projects and, and sort of family stuff. Does your understanding and sort of your, the way you view the town change over the years as you kind of like spend all this time in other places every time you come back, does it feel the same or does it feel a little different? I, I've definitely matured. I've definitely grown up. I think definitely growing up as a 16 year old here, like you sort of, I felt very, um, you know, it is literally the most isolated city in the world. I definitely felt trapped and that I needed to go out and that, you know, culture happened out there in the world and it didn't, you know, and that it, it sort of trickled back here, but it wasn't sort of created here. But obviously that's that's false. There's incredible arts cultures here, Indigenous cultures here, Aboriginal art here is amazing. Like it's, there's, but, you know, as a 16-year-old, I didn't, I, you know, I just wanted to go out and, 
and um, you know slay dragons around the world. That's sort of my thing. So I think coming back has made me definitely appreciate it more. I was also uh, during COVID. I was also the um, artistic director of the uh, guest artistic director at the State Museum here. So I got a really great chance to meet all local artists, put on a really big, massive um, survey show of Western Australian art, working with the curators there. So that was um, also let me really understand the city in a in a really new way too. So you haven't burnt all your bridges there just yet. Just yet, no. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you say, just because I know that there's obviously a lot of American, a big American audience on this podcast. When you say like isolated city, like, you know, when we talk about Australia, we talk about Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, mm -hmm. like how, how close is the nearest city for you? Like maybe Sydney or Melbourne or something like that. The next capital city is sort of like a three and a half day drive. Um, <laughs> and then to get, and then a couple more days driving to get to like Sydney or Melbourne from here. Like it's, it's really out there on the West Coast. Like it's, um, yeah, it's isolated. That's definitely. I I moan. I'm I'm now. I live in a little town outside London, and I moan about my hour that it takes me to get into London. I find it, <laughs> I find it challenging. <laughs> so yeah. So where do you say a three and a half day drive? It slightly puts things into perspective. It's yeah. It's it's definitely an isolated place, which is which is part of what's wonderful about it, and and also, um, obviously why it was kind of challenging as a as a teenager. So what was that scene like then, you know, coming from a, a small isolated city, a relatively small isolated city, what were the young kids doing uh, when you were growing up there? Because obviously graffiti was, you know, a huge part of your identity and your, you know, kind of coming of age. Yeah, so I, I definitely, I grew up as a big sort of film and photography nerd and also and an, uh, loved art. And so my friends, when I was in high school, started painting graffiti and they knew I was good at art so they started taking me out and this is I don't think the, the world the word street art didn't exist back then well, it wasn't really a popularized term so while I kind of did you know characters and backgrounds and things like that which I would still you know no one was really saying the word street art um, back then and kind of the I guess kind of late 90s I guess is when I sort of started and the scene was really really good like a, and like actually really strong and incredible but um but I think like you talked to and, and I was sort of um mentored in by some of the the more senior graffiti writers here who are just like you know still like family to me here now and and they were just um uh particularly like artists like dash and shime and uh tfc crew like i, I think they're sort of they're sort of they were some of the first artists to sort of get in planes and travel over to europe and paint and they brought uh lumen and how nozem back here and stuff like that so they're actually really um active in bringing artists back here as well and, and traveling um particularly through europe so they were you know some of the first artists i'd seen that that sort of showed that you didn't you could actually just get on planes and travel and get out there and you know it didn't have to be a barrier being here what was your kind of relationship then with that graffiti culture did you see yourself as a graffiti artist or were you kind of like because uh, it's such a kind of like it's such a rule coded subculture with all those rules they they tend not to be so keen on people kind of pushing the the boundaries of what that is yeah well look i, I mean i can't say i can't i can't speak for, <laughs> for everyone here but i think <laughs> the collective voice my first job was like working at like the only um graffiti paint store like so i kind of knew everyone when i was you know selling paint to everyone and kind of part of that whole community here. And, you know, I think it was a largely really supportive one, you know, and I think there, you know, I think it was when I started and came through, it was just before you could really, 
make money from it. Like I think everyone was all in it together. Like it was still 35 millimeter photos. Digital cameras weren't really there yet. It was the start of message boards, but it was right at the beginning. But when I started, it was like still just at the end of shoeboxes full of 35 mil photos. So it's, um, it, I don't think anyone was there to sort of make money. And then I think after that, as in the early 2000s, that's when that sort of word street art came in. That's when there was sort of this, that sort of tension started to grow up, at least in, in this scene here. So I think I was kind of bedded in with that graffiti community before there was a the tension. Yeah, when you talk about this tension, what happened then? Did you have to, was there a line drawn in the sand and you had to pick a side and you're standing there with your characters going, oh, lads, I think I'm, I think I'm going to have to go over here. <laughs> I don't, I, I, you know what, like, I'm, I, it's probably a testament to my friends, like, no one's ever, at least to my face, had a problem with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think, but I still get people being like, why are you stop painting? Like, why aren't you painting things? Like, I'll still go paint with friends socially, but I'm not, you know, I think, I think there's a, there's definitely a, a bunch of, of friends who friendly rib me and, and be like, oh, this contemporary art game is, I'm glad you're doing well, Ian, but when are you going to? get back on a wall and pick up a can again you know that's there's definitely that the that's um it always comes back around to that a little bit with old friends i think that's good that's what they're there for yeah exactly exactly do you still pick up a can yeah yeah occasionally occasionally um just for uh, fun like when it's not a you know sort of like film crew full set yeah project. yeah i think that stuff all that sort of the documenting stuff and all that stuff sort of it was a bit of a turn off for me so i'm i'm definitely still do it for for fun with friends and as a community thing, but but certainly not as I nothing you would say is like an art practice or anything like that. It's 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 really about you know I, I I'd still miss it. Like I love standing on a wall with people and chatting and catching up, and it's just like it's social. It's you know it's um it's really nice. Like I, I really um you know it's and it's how I can like a lot of my friends. It's how we we talk and how we catch up. You know, and that's I just really love that. It's the equivalent of just going to the pub. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think in, in that era as well, growing up in high school, like it wasn't, I I've, I mean, I have sort of younger interns that come through the studio and I'm always sort of asking them, like, how do you find out about your favorite artists? Like, how are you into art and all that stuff? Like when I was in high school, like it wasn't cool to do art. You were like a, I don't know, in America, they saw like a band geek, like though that wasn't the cool thing to do. So the, the idea that you could, um, you could paint and be creative and go out with a bunch of what is often a bunch of kind of rough and tumble looking guys and essentially do a, a, an art project together on the side of a, a warehouse it was sort of kind of amazing and actually be it actually be kind of cool like you're not you're not sort of um given grief for it that's the thing i love about these big burly graffiti artists you know they're like the hard guys you're like mate you're just you're just drawing doodles like <laughs> shut up well i yeah i was i mean that's to say i was like i was never the big big tough guy i was always like never um, I always felt like the mascot in those big burly crews of dudes. It's definitely not the, I was definitely not the muscle, I'll tell you that much. And during that time then, I'm just going to stay in this for a bit. Did you kind of feel that there was something blowing up? Because you found yourself as a, as a sort of leader in the pack and this bubbling scene. Did you know that this was something that was about to blow up? No, uh, no, no. And I think, I mean, there were definitely people leading ahead of me. And I think I definitely was standing on a lot of shoulders of people here to be able to get out and do those things. But it was, I think, a story that I'm sure you get with a lot of artists is like the, the internet comes along and then there's message boards and there's Flickr and there's MySpace and there's ways of suddenly reaching out and sharing images. And, you know, it becomes, you suddenly realize like, oh, there's this sort of couch circuit where you can go and land in a city and you know people would land here you'd put them up you'd find them paint and vice versa and, and that was always a very 
kind of great tight little community that was sort of opened up globally. And I think the internet really helped that. Um, I wasn't really until I got to New York that I kind of was sort of sat down and told like, okay, this is a moment. This is what you're part of. You can kind of see, I got a little bit more perspective on, on what that, what was happening globally, I guess. How did that impact like the way that you had seen the, the scene or the world, the art world changed from when you were in the most isolated city in the world into the center of culture for the world, arguably. Well, I mean, it's probably important to say, like, I, I, you know, I didn't, I, you know, made, I'd studied art, but also film and design, and that was sort of like where my head was always in, sort of photography and film, and I loved the documentation side of graffiti and and painting and that sort of stuff, and I, I did that for, you know, I never really saw that I, I never thought it would be something that blo- would blow up or I'd make money from, you know, it was never really, it just wasn't possible when I started, and then you know. It sort of it sort of blew up from there, and I think, I think first going to Sydney, and then um, and then Melbourne, and then meeting the the people over there were far more integrated and organised, and doing it for a living, and then exhibiting, and then being able to get to New York, and then that was just um, that was wild, and that was around two thousand nine, two thousand ten, well two thousand nine first, then moved two thousand ten, and then that was you know uh, you know coming over uh, at the behest of Ron English, and then you know, immediately exhibiting next to, you know, Futura, Banksy, Hal Nozem, Lady Pink, like everyone. I like how you just casually, casually threw away that. No, it blew, it blew my mind. No, 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 it was, it was really the golden ticket. And that was all Ron English. Like it was just absolutely incredible. Tell us about how the, how the connection with Ron English came in and what kind of role he, he played in this formation or this trajectory. So that was, um, that was in 2009. I was living in Sydney and he came over for a conference called Semi-Permanent. And then, in, and then he, he was speaking at the conference and then I think there was an exhibition, like a group exhibition they'd organised at a, a local gallery and I sort of turned up with a, a bunch of other artists and just sort of beeline straight to him. And, and I'd been doing bus shelter takeovers at the time and had, you know, all the keys and all the, all the posters and paint set up at my studio and I basically said, look, if you want to do a, a takeover, if you want to do anything, like just let me know and we can, uh, I can set that up for you. I can, you know, um, anything you need, um, let, let me know. And he said, yep, absolutely, what are you doing tomorrow? And just came to my studio the next day. And then, you know, for me that was the ultimate because I sort of, you know, there was very few documentaries about artists out there and there was a, the Art and Crime of Ron English was one of those documentaries that I saw. I think there was like the videos you get a hold of was like the Cope 2 movie and Subway Art, uh, not Subway Art, um, uh, Wild Style. And my blanket. Wild Style and the, uh, you know, Star Wars. Of Ron English. Yeah. And there's a big jump between those two eras. There's a big jump between those ones. And then, and then being able to, you know, help him do a, a takeover and, you know, do a big takeover through Sydney and put our posters up next to each other. That was just mind blowing. And then um, he went back to New York and then I got an email from him a, a few months later saying, I'm putting together a street art survey exhibition in New York. I want to put you in this show. Um, can you send over some work? And I, you know, I sort of got on a plane, went to that opening and then, you know, it, I was, yes, thrown into the middle of everything. It was pretty incredible. What was your big sort of takeaway from that point? Were you like, okay, this is, this is it. Did it suddenly feel like this is not just, you know, me messing about with a couple of cans. This is maybe, this is a career. Uh, no, I, th- I think by the time I got to New York and, and the work was actually, I mean, I, I don't think I'd sold work for more than a couple of hundred dollars until I got to New York. And then the, the, 
it was just working with galleries and selling work and selling paintings and that scale. And then, and obviously um, Ron and, and his wife, Tarsa as well, were like family to me and just really um, was super supportive and really schooled me through and, and made sure I had a sort of soft landing there too and sort of kind of worded me up on how to manage everything as well, which was really, um, really generous. Like I just, I, you know, very, very lucky to have, have, have had that support from them and sort of managing it as a, as how it could be a career. And, and um, it's that thing of like being able to see working artists and see how they live and how they make money and, and realizing, you know, what that looks like. And then you can sort of start to mirror that. I mean, that's the access to actually just see it up close and go to studios at, at that level. It was just um, really what, like eye-opening and, and made me, and also made it accessible. You realize like, okay, this is possible. This is a job. Like I, I understand how to do this. Like I know how to work hard and I, but also no one sort of teaches you how to manage a studio, manage things day to day. Because it's such a romanticized industry, it's such a romanticized profession historically, you know, it's to be the artist, to be the poet, you know, it's like, I just exist. I sell to this person or this person. And it's like, the museum took my work. It's like, no, there's there's mechanics underneath that that, that build to these points. My friends always say it's the, it's uh, let me tell you a story um, about the past as if it was intentional. You sort of take the highlight reel and lay it together and you make it seem like you were like, oh, and then this happened, I was invited to this museum show and I did this, and it makes you seem like you're this, it was all sort of ordained. They don't tell you the all the stressing in between and the fretting and the emailing and all the notes that go along the way, you know. So I think it's yeah, it's the understanding the business of it is a is a is a whole other thing. Yeah, and I think that's where the that kind of collaborative mentorship really plays such an important role. And it's really great to see artists and cause does this as well. You know, this kind of like brings people in and and shape, and you start to see the way that the artists kind of come through these these bigger artists that have got to this point and then you start to see this amazing talent kind of coming through these machines and it's it's purely just that skill sharing and that experience just showing people hey this is how it works yeah and like a sense of obligation right it's like you don't close the door behind you like it's sort of i'm you know i'm i managed the opportunities i've had are just purely through the generosity of people opening up doors and allowing me through and you sort of you gotta sort of you know pay that forward as well i think There's something beautiful about watching older generations usher in the next. And I think it's really easy for us to overlook how those small actions can make such a huge difference. It's also really interesting to watch over the years how the lines between graffiti culture and the contemporary institutional art world have become increasingly blurred. Seeing artists like Shepard Fairey, Veals or JR occupy space inside museums feels commonplace today, but that wasn't always the case. When Ian Strange took over the Turbine Hall in Sydney back in 2011, this was a significant step forward into the acceptance of street art and graffiti by the establishment. We're going to dig right into that right here, right now, on Radio Juxtapose, in conversation with Ian Strange. I, I hadn't planned on kind of doing this chronologically, but I'm kind of going chronologically <laughs> since we're here. Because um, yeah. then obviously you had this, you had jumped over to Australia and then the project that I think was the one that really sort of 
catapulted you into this new new place was home in 2011 in Cockatoo Island. How well do you remember coming up with that and conceptualizing that and that experience and the time around there? We're going back, you know, it's what, 12 years ago. now. Yeah. <laughs> how well yeah. do you remember yeah. that? And do you remember how you kind of came up with this idea? Because this was this was different. You know, this isn't just canvas work. This isn't street work. This is something really different. Do you want to just maybe describe the project a little bit and how it kind of, you know, the the driving forces behind it? Yeah. So the 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 project was a um, I, I rebuilt the the house I I grew up in and then sort of put this sort of motif of a skull in the front of it and then had this performance film destroying these cars and it was um, and then the interior of the house was this sort of soundscape and then a video work inside the house as you sort of went into it. I was at full scale and it was in uh, the Turbine Hall in Cockatoo Island, which is a sort of big, um, well, old turbine hall, but it's been turned into a, um, a large space that, that has like uh, the Sydney Biennale it uses a space. It's, it's sort of a big, large contemporary art installations in there a lot of the time as well. There's a few things going on that sort of led to that. One was, one was having moved to New York and, and thinking about that time growing up in Australia, my sort of literal home, that sort of adolescence and that sort of social dislocation I kind of felt growing up that probably made me go and paint graffiti or made me want to sort of escape and that sort of the sort of angst that sort of sat there. And then the other the other part of it was sort of formally as a practice. I, I think I'd I'd sort of been encouraged by Ron and a few people around me to to sort of really explore what was sort of unique about my own practice as well, which is, you know, I'm really interested in in photography and film and the documentation of my work and that's sort of a, a huge passion of mine as well and, and sort of extending the image making. So I really, and these sort of large scale installations and I, I was sort of interested in, in sort of branching out. And so um, that project was sort of the first time where um, I was able to sort of build this sort of large scale installation, collaborating with friends, collaborating with people that I'd, I'd worked with before and, and old friends I convinced to come and help me out and um, making a film and and, make, and also incorporating this sort of like mark making and painting and, and the motif of the home as well. So it all sort of, it was sort of a, a sort of starting point. At the time I would have thought of it as a one-off work, but it sort of really spawned on to becoming this, this moving from a very sort of personal specific in, investigation of home to then suddenly become, well, I guess the last 12 years, like looking at... Um, Sort of more universally looking at the image of the home. How did your um? How did your folks? I, I'm not sure what your family situation is, but how did they take it when you were uh, sort of critiquing and uh, hammering, taking a hammer to cars and sort of like, you know, like you say, there was a certain angst around this this sacred childhood space. Yeah, yeah, my um, yeah, my mum like cried when she saw it. Actually, the um, the it was um. Yeah, it was it was it was it was definitely sort of an, an interesting thing. Like I should I should say, I think my my poor parents thought that I think that I could do so much work that a lot of it was sort of perceived as as dark. And I think it's I should probably say that I had a perfectly fine family and, and parents that I wasn't I wasn't like it wasn't a it wasn't a um um this is not me exercising demons of of my of my childhood in in any kind of significant way i wouldn't say so my poor parents i think were more concerned that it's a rebellion against comfort i well yeah yeah maybe i'm I, <laughs> you'd have to go back 12 years to talk about that work but i think <laughs> at, the, at the time it was really so what it's going back a while honestly but it's yeah. it's um it was certainly reflecting on that i think there's like sort of a simmeringness to australian suburbia and that sort of that sort of middle class that sort of post-war ideal of the home in australia as well broadly that that really sits in the underbelly of Australian culture. It's really uncomfortable 
sort of cultural space as well, I think. What do you mean um, by I that? I think it's, well, well, a couple of things. I think there's there's sort of notions of sort of identity and place in Australia that, that are sort of un, unresolved, particularly when you're talking about First Nation stories and, and, and sort of imported notions of culture in Australia and, and also what sits under the land in this country as well. And then also um, there's a really, um, you know, particular time, I think it's been unpicked a lot more now, but I think it, you know, at, at the time there's a sort of, there's a big broad um, culturally conservative middle class in Australia, particularly at the time as well, that was really, uh, which I think there's this sort of Australian... I don't know, there's a sort of Australian sort of fair go, good bloke, laid back, sort of like veneer to everything. But the I think the longer you spend here, you can see that that's sort of a, a very thin veneer and, and there's sort of a sort of a lot of dark cultural undertones that sit um, culturally within Australia as well. And I think this ubiquity of the suburban home and the Australian dream and the quarter acre block and all that sort of stuff is sort of a, a, a very, um, it, it it's a thin veil across that sort of the sort of, you know, a sort of kind of darker cultural landscape here, I would say. Which almost sounds, I, I think you could just, I mean, and, you know, maybe the Americans listening will, will say otherwise, we could almost just interchange Australian with American there, American dream, Australian right. dream, you know, this this right. idea, this undertone, this, this kind of, you know, disputed lands, uh, mm -hmm. this kind of notion of the nuclear family and the, you know, pop off to work and mama raising the kids and this is the white picket right. fence kind of existence but actually underneath right. that there's a lot more yeah absolutely and i, I think that's i think there, there's a lot of that um ubiquitous suburban dream that was pushed out particularly post world war ii that mm -hmm. i think it exported to you know largely you know the, the uk australia um the us as well sort of a big part of a cultural psyche as well and a lot of that was exported from the us but it also became a big part of the Australian cultural psyche, and and I should note, like you started to look at 2000 and, um, 2010, 11, when I started making this work as well. You're looking at really immediately after the mm. effects of the GFC, which is you know a lot of cultural critique of suburbia was about uh, this sort of mundane repetition kind of salary man, like like almost like a critique of the suburbs was a critique of industrialization, and and I think there's a um, I think we got to 2008 and the housing crisis there in the GFC and it sort of unpicked that notion of stability and, and, and sort of is a really destabilizing effect. And I think a whole for a generation and, and my generation and, and after as well, I think can't look at the notion of home ownership, suburbia, the fiscal stability, job stability, like that kind of, it really, you know, looking back on it, you can see it really was the, um, the bookend to that sort of post-war idealism if it hadn't already been destroyed. Like, I think there was a, it was, you know, it, that that promise of that sort of expansive um, uh, vision for the world after the war um, and and sort of ubiquitous home ownership and those ideals, I think, was, um, I don't think it could continue with that, that fast much longer as well. And I should also say that idea of ubiquitous suburbia was for, for predominantly white um, groups of people as well is already non-inclusive in the first place so it's anyway i feel like that that critique of suburbia after 2008 is, is something that i'm particularly interested in as well did you realize that there was so much depth to this kind of concept at the time when you when you first started to explore it no no i i i, I mean i think i saw how strongly people reacted to the um you know the house i grew up in was a, a very um 
a sort of uh, sort of smaller railway workers terrace home that not terrace like work a railway cottage sorry um, is quite a common image in Australia as well and that's sort of why I liked working with it is because it, it's I could sort of for that first work explore my own relationship to it but also use this very very familiar repetitive symbol that would be familiar to a lot of Australians and I think I saw that strong reaction to that work and then beginning to work in the US with houses um, and communities there as well I started to you know, through making this work, through working with sites, through working with different community groups, museums, festivals and things, uh, I you sort of begin to understand the, the power of that symbol and that place and, and um, is something that, that's sort of been a journey of, of learning this through making it, honestly. What or where is home? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I think up until, well, after 2010, I would have said New York for about a decade and then um, uh, COVID happened and then... I came back to Australia for a year and a half. And now after the borders have been up, I've been sort of traveling for projects. So I haven't really had a had a base. I've got a, yeah, I don't really have a base, honestly. I'm still figuring that one out. I'm still a little bit uprooted. But I think definitely back in the, back in the US, I'm just trying to work out where that will be, um, whether that's back in New York or the West Coast. Do you find that... You know, kind of going to all these different communities that they have a different sense of what home might be for them. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, and I think a lot of these projects, I think I should say probably that that home project was kind of unique because it was like a, a built house. But most of the work I do, actually, I work directly with existing houses and creating sort of markings, interventions, light works directly with those houses that are uh, mostly temporary. Temporary is in the installations then removed afterwards or temporary is in that the house is scheduled for demolition. Um, so that is predominantly what the most most of the works I've, I've created have been and then they're documented in film and photography. And so all those projects start with a sort of an invitation from a community to come and work in there and then making sure that that's and a consultation process to make sure that that's something that that I'm, I'm working to like a local community agenda there, that there's, 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 there's good on the ground and, and um, um, goodwill for me being there and, and creating a collaborative work with the community. So a lot of it is sort of the work sit in this sort of tension between, you know, creating these images, this documentation of the work, which is of the houses and the, the, the surrounding suburbs. Um, and a lot, a lot of times those images are kind of, I'd like to work with homes that kind of feel universal this sort of universal notion of the home the sort of the symbol of the home the icon of a sort of single single story dwelling mostly single story dwellings um but then obviously there's also the 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 narrative and the story of that of that community in that area as well and and so it there's these sort of two stories going on the very specific idea of a home in a neighborhood that you may have grown up in or around and you know that story of that um community in terms of you know social, economic, or community, like what that background and that that specificity of that neighbourhood is, and then there's also this sort of idea that the home is such a ubiquitous symbol that it, you can then take that image and show that in a gallery, and it can also be a um, a universal experience viewing that image of that home as well. If if the work's successful, what are some of the and I know that you do a lot of projects, but what are some of the sort of narratives and stories that you'll be approached with of how you know, what a community is hoping to achieve or what they're hoping to celebrate or, or mark? What are some of these narratives that come through? I think uh, probably the, the, the 
the most sort of simple example is a complex one, but it's sort of the best example is a word right, called final act. A, sim a simple one. It's complex, but it's the more simple, <laughs> the simple one that I can get. I'm trying to, I sort of, it sort of condenses all the projects, but it's, it's, um, I'll do my best. Anyway, it, it was a, uh, a project in Christchurch, New Zealand after the uh, earthquake there. So that was at the invitation of a, uh, a festival called Rising and the Canterbury Museum there. Um, and after the, uh, after the 2011 earthquakes there, there was a large sections of the city destroyed, but also a massive section of the um, uh, the, the suburbs, surrounding suburbs um, were also destroyed, which left about 16,000 homes slated for uh, demolition. And so I was invited to come in and, and create a work with the community there. A Tuesday in February, February the 22nd, at about uh, five to one, uh, there was a very big earthquake. It was the big one. Whole communities, for as far as you could drive, really, just completely kind of written off. 8,000 red zoned houses and 8,000 domestic houses. And so that's 16,000 homes that have gone. And that's 16,000 families that have had to go somewhere else. That, that project was, um, you know, a pretty, a pretty clear ask. The idea was that no one was really, people so focused on the um, restoration of the city centre that these sort of you know, this is sort of two, three years on from the earthquake. When we, we came in, the area was overgrown. There wasn't a lot of focus on them. They were being demolished. It was quite controversial in terms of, there was a lot of contro uh, controversy around the uh, insurance schemes, how long it had been taken for people to get paid. So there's sort of a lot of tension there as well. And I think the thought was that, a, that an art project as well could somehow sort of highlight um, the stories of those homes and also um, in some way doc emotively document those houses too. And so that was a project uh, where I collaborated with a cinematographer called Alan Bollinger, who had uh, shot parts of Lord of the Rings, Heavenly Creatures, is a, a long-term collaborator of um, Peter Jackson, um, and sort of worked with former residents, neighbours, community groups, um, community groups and that had popped up after the quake as well to sort of restore these houses, bring them back into a condition that was um, close, closely resembled the sort of memory of the homes as well. I think it's probably important to say that the work that I make, I'm not interested in making work about ruin. I'm sort of more interested in sort of memory. Um, and so we then created these sort of light interventions of the houses, sort of cutting into the houses and removing sections of the homes that sort of referenced the damage that was done to the, to the other houses as well. I think if you walk down those streets, they're all kind of split, sunk into the ground, cut open, walls had sort of fallen off them as well. So I wanted to almost poetically and beautifully create sort of this um, deconstruction of the houses as well, where you have this experience of inside becoming out, this the sort of veneer of safety of the home um, being sort of broken quite literally, but do it in a in a beautiful way where these sort of, the homes were uh, with panels removed or cut out with a little white light internally lit. So they become these sort of beacons with light sort of pouring out of them as well. And so that, um, so they become documentation of these these homes before they're sort of the last photos of these houses before they're demolished, but then they also become these sort of poetic images of documentation, sort of elevated documentation that's sort of about kind of notions of destruction and release as well. And then they that was then exhibited back to the alongside a, a film work and the photo documentation that became an, an exhibition at the the Canterbury Museum in the community itself, then went into their permanent collection. So it becomes a sort of permanent sort of emotive archive of the, the neighbourhoods as well. There's something quite inherently, I guess, 
provocative about seeing this home, this place of safety that you you all of us have some kind of connection to the sense of safety around a structure, seeing it destroyed. It's this intentional or visually challenged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you, you're kind of right. I think it's, um, the, I think if there's a sort of central theme to the work or a central connection between the bodies of work, it's it's really about taking some kind of psychological interior of the home and applying it to the outside of the home or using the exterior of the home as a kind of way of, broadcasting a sort of an, an emotive internal narratives of the spaces and places as well. And so I think for me, this, this idea that if you mark a house, that if you put a, you know, a, a giant black paint, a giant black void on it, or put a line mark through it as well, it's, it's actually not, you're not destroying the function of the house, right? You're, people could still live in there. It might obscure a window, but it still functions perfectly fine, but you're creating this sort of aesthetic shift to it. But it, it can feel like an attack. It can feel like it, you know, there's, there's this notion of trespass or like someone crossing a threshold and marking that house without permission or it um, being aggressively changed, you know. And I think there's a long history of, you know, um, uh, markings on houses in terms of in early modern England during the Great Plague, people putting crosses on, on doors. There's protective symbols that people would put on houses. There's people, you know, revenge graffiti and people, um, you know, people marking houses vengefully and, and also, um, you know, uh, anti-Semitic and, and racial vilification on houses as well. I think there's this, this larger history of people marking houses because they know how personal that symbol is, that there's a there's a, a cultural threshold. And I think you and I would both know there's also that code in graffiti that you can paint. You know, I, I was sort of taught very early on as a teenager, you don't paint people's houses, you paint, you know, commercial property, I'm thinking, but painting someone's house is something else as well, which I think is is really interesting too. So I think all those ideas that that, that this structure, this notion of home can, um, that with such a simple marking that it can kind of feel like a really personal and direct attack on the individual or the ideas that sit inside the house or the inhabitants or um, the social condition of the area as well. I think that's really interesting. It suddenly means that that one home suddenly becomes like symbolic of, of, of all of the um, internal, emotional, cultural, and political um, weight that we put on that symbol of the home, you know. And I think that's, that's really interesting. And so I think endlessly being able to work with that image and that symbol is something that, um, that's, that's really fruitful as an artist, I guess. And it is. I mean, you know, you're 12 years in. The deeper you go, the wider it becomes. And suddenly this thing that was about a structure and about a, a reflection of your childhood suddenly becomes this this conversation for, you know, disputed territories in, in sacred areas. You know, it's like it goes out that far. Absolutely. And I think, I, I think that's kind of, for me, that I really is so far from being a personal work now, an autobiographical work at all. It's really so much more focused on like local site research, the community and, and a reflection of that now. But it's, it is interesting. It's from all that way ago goes started from a, a kind of more personal investigation, I think. Do you do much that kind of commercial? Because most of the work that I'm familiar with you doing is really, really kind of community and arts cultural centers and institutions driven. Like there's, that's who I see you sitting in amongst. I'm, I'm sure you must have been reached out to a couple of times by some commercial entities. Um, does it just not interest you or what's the, what's the sort of the story there? Uh, no, no, I'm always, I'm always open to those things. Like I think it's, uh, and I've done a few things. Like I think, 
the the stuff with Virgil was probably the the biggest stuff. He was a great collaborator though, and sort of really interested in, you know, he always talked about using his labels as as a vehicle to be an artist, and that was his agenda, you know. And I think that you know, I think that sort of showed in the work you could kind of make with him. It's amazing just to continue to see the absolute breadth of culture that that guy touched. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's and you, I I keep finding out from people. And like kind of mutual friends of like projects that didn't happen, things that were meant, like all the stuff that was on the boil that it's just, um, yeah, incredible. I think he, I mean, knowing him made me change the way I run my studio and the way I practice, like without a doubt, like absolutely without a doubt. How so? Working with him and seeing the speed that he would work at and like actually knowing that you, you, um, you discover through making. You know, sort of it's, it's, and I, I always thought of myself as quite an efficient, fast worker. And then I worked with him and I realized like, okay, this is really quick. And then, and then really at a practical level, like, um, I think we started talking in 2013 and then I immediately was like, great, my studio is running on WhatsApp for everything now and running everything. You know what I mean? Like it's like workflow and like how you structure studio and how you collaborate with people to do larger scale works. And, um, he was really transparent and, and open with how he works and how he collaborates with people and communicates with multiple teams and stuff. So that was, I sort of, that all went into how I set up things for my projects as well. So I think as much as I haven't really done many commercial collaborations and, but also the, the, the mode of working that, that sort of do projects is very close to the way that any kind of large scale logistic project works. It's sort of, a, it's, it's the same as a, you'd run a film set or an architect would work or a designer would work is that you, you're you communicating with a large team of people. You need to kind of create a, a top line vision of how to deliver something, but then you also need to be nimble and adaptive to what's on the ground and who you can work with and and, and be practical with the realities of a budget and, and delivering something. So like all that real nuts and bolts of delivering something is not, not dissimilar to running, I guess, a, a major sort of fashion project, design project, architecture project or film project and 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 all, all my projects you know they're they're very much run in the same way do you still get the same sense of satisfaction or how does the sense of satisfaction differ between finishing something as like ethereal as you know and, and raw as going out and painting a character piece illegally in a, on a wall compared to two years in the making building up a team and and then seeing that moment where the light shines in the house and then you go and that's it I do. I mean, I, it, I, I do joke that it's, I've gone from like the, the, the pinnacle of not asking permission to like the absolute penultimate, like asking permission of like, you know, everything from like council city permissions, like friends with the mayor. Well, exactly. Sometimes like it's the, the, the level of like organization bureaucracy, like to deliver these projects is the, it, it, literally the opposite of jumping a fence and painting something. You know, I get nostalgic, you know, either way you go nostalgic, right? I still have a studio practice and I think I, I still love drawing and painting in the studio. And so I'll still, when I need to feel like I can make something myself with my own hands, so I'll, I'll go and sort of work on a drawing, work on a painting and that that I can create a contained work myself there quite comfortably. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, going out and making these large projects, they're, they're big, they're, they're big. And, and a lot of the time getting them off the ground is sort of multi-year affairs or... You know, sometimes they're short, short sprints to deliver them, but a lot of the time they, they take they take a lot of time to get up. And so it's, um, it's just a different mode of working and thinking. It's funny because um, we first met at a street art festival, at New Art Street yes. Art Festival in, in Norway. And, you know, I think for a lot of people who are familiar with your work, especially now, 
you know, that you do these multi-year projects, these big grand concepts with, you know, film crews and lighting experts and all this, you know, real thought and, and, and process. But there you are at a street art festival. So you, do you still see yourself as a sort of like one foot in the culture? Do you still do these kind of like projects still interest you? Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think it, I don't I, I I don't personally make the distinction between like here's the here's like the contemporary art biennale that's sort of like quote unquote like the proper art world and then there's this a street art festival that's something else like i don't it's it's however you make the project and make the work you know and i don't see a i don't make a, a distinction between the two and i think they don't all the projects i make don't need to be bigger than ben-hur it's about like what what can you do to make good work and i think um martin and new art are just i think also like that festival in particular is i think if you track the growth of those festivals, they sort of really did move into a lot of, it all sort of channeled towards muralism over a couple of years, but really like um, at the beginning, they were so experimental with what you could do. And like, is it like this street sculpture, there's installations, there's sort of performance-based work. So like, it was a really big, it was like protest-based works. It was, it was never, um, I don't, I think they it sort of built to being a formula of like, it's, you know, it's this many scissor lifts, it's this, it's the murals, which are great festivals, like no shade at all. But like it's, it sort of fell into a formula, whereas I feel like... Because they're the ones that get the hits. Right, of course, absolutely. And, and it's also, there's, there's love for it as well. And I think that's, and that's, that's amazing. But I think that New Art and, and there's a few other festivals who still are really open to there being different kinds of works. I mean, I, I did a work in um, uh, Katowice in Poland, which was a, a street art festival there where they were really open to me wrapping an, an entire... Um, building in, in gold wallpaper for this sort of installation work as well. And they were that sat alongside mural works as well. And I still think that's one of the more successful projects and works I've ever made. So I, I don't see, yeah, I don't see the distinction. I see it's just as, is the curator open to doing something a little bit, a little bit different than a, than a big mural, you know? And I think that's. To trusting you. Yeah, trusting me. Yeah, that's, that's kind of it. And I, I, I like to think I come through with the goods. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I went to I went to New York one year. It was like he had told me there was like twenty twenty six artists that he invited. I was like, okay, cool. I'm supposed to be filming twenty six artists. <laughs> and and every and it was like no muralists. There was like two muralists, and everyone else was right. just doing weird shit. And it was yep. like you know we got we we spent all the money on the flights and the hotels for these guys. So we've got no budget for stuff. So there's guys just running about with electrical tape trying to make art or stealing shit from somewhere else. And it's like, do you know what? That's fun. Like That's more great. more play for the world, you know, in, in that whole thing. And, you know, it's it's that kind of balance between these two. Yeah. And I think I think what Martin's doing out there with the journal and I think that's really important, the writing there that he's doing. I think that, you know, I think that that whole um I think the sort of critical conversation he's having around it and sort of allowing it to be placed within, you know, I think building the the bridges so it can communicate into the sort of quote unquote like proper art world whatever that is you know but i think it's it's um building a sort of critical dialogue around the work is 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 really really important and i, I think that's you know i, I think is they, what they're doing is great also shout out to suze hansen for her work on that journal as well some great uh, articles in there and i think that was the thing for me with muralism and stuff like that for me it was just street art more widely but it's like if you come in you come in because you've seen the pretty picture and then suddenly mm -hmm. it's like bang 
here's a critical discussion about why this is historic right. and why this is a reflection of something else or why it's referencing something that existed 50 years ago. And it's like, oh, now I've learned something. And it's like, okay, cool. It's that next level of understanding that takes it away from just a, a click, a like on a, an Instagram page. And I think a lot of muralism's fallen into that trap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right as well. And I think it's, um, well, I mean, the other thing I, want, I just want to say is like that, that, the, the Fight Club debates that he has, the festival, I, I maintain are the best, like, like rambunctious critical dialogue I've ever seen at any festival, any, like, any um, conference I've been to, anything. Like, I, it's, it's the way that you actually want a panel discussion to go. Like, people just, like, throwing out ideas, like, being fiery, like, and actually, like, playing devil's advocate and just playing with ideas in a really in a way that no one, everyone takes it seriously and no one takes it seriously, you know? And I think that was, and I, and I think it's, it's all or nothing. Right. And, and people, people aren't speaking like they're being recorded because they're not, you know, they're speaking like they've had a couple of drinks and they're, because they have, because they have had a couple of drinks, but as I mean, I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that. And I think that, uh, that I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll go back to that festival just to see that again. One of my highlights was watching a very, a, a slightly intoxicated Robert Montgomery just about to deck Carlo McCormick. <laughs> like, and there was a moment where everyone just got to look to each other and went, is he going to punch him? Like, Carl yeah. McCormick walks with a cane. <laughs> it's going to walk with two now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll teach you, you bastard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm just... I, was, I don't know where we go from there. Uh, there was another question, but it feels so disconnected. I don't know how to seg. We got all the way to like punching Carlo McCormick. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> lovely man. We talk about these uh, projects, and it ranges from you know wrapping a building in wallpaper to doing a lighting installation. What guides these this aesthetic direction for you? Because they feel, are, is it all just coming from like a, a pot that you have sort of sitting there waiting and you go, oh, this will work here? Or is there something, mm -hmm. a different way that you approach this creative direction? Uh, it's grown over time, like I guess over the last 12 years, but for the, for the most part, the work is always now based on, on site research. So it's like, it's what is the site? What's the community? What's the need? What's the, and what's the response to that, to that site as well? And I think that's, that's sort of where it all, all comes back from. But I think... Um, in terms of like application and the interventions on the houses, I've, I've really moved away. It sort of started with paint markings and sort of cutting. And then I've now really moved away from directly marking the house. I'm really interested in, in using light and installations to sort of separate it out of the landscape. So now almost purely working with, with only light now instead of um, these sort of direct physical interventions and cutting and, and into the house or anything like that. Um, I've sort of moved away from that. It's sort of, I guess sort of more instinctively, it's never felt appropriate for any of the, the projects. I guess I may go back to it if it felt like the right work for a, for a, um, uh, for a community or for a project or a collaboration, but um, I've sort of moved more into to working. I guess light in many ways sort of touches the house, but it doesn't um, directly touch or directly uh, shift the surface of the house. Do you think there's still that same sort of sense of rebellion in there? Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I, I feel like I've I've moved from a, a sense of exploring sort of young that sort of that angst that suburban angst I guess right at the beginning, and I guess the painting and the marking has this sort of as I said before like a sense of and it's almost an aesthetic attack while it's not a 
directly destroying the house. It has this sense of, of trespass and attack. And then I've softened so much and, and moved to, to using light and everything. I'm, I'm surprised when people see the work as super antagonistic sometimes. I think it's, for me, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel that way at all. It feels questioning. It feels inquisitive. It feels critical, but it doesn't feel like an attack But um, for me personally. But I, it certainly wouldn't say someone's wrong if that's how they feel about it. It just surprises me because I, I guess I deal with the materials so often. Like watching through some of the videos, there's people really even mentioned at the start that your um, your mum cried when she saw the the home project for the first time. Is there a particular moment that stands out to you like as particularly poignant over the years, something that you kind of like, oh yeah, that that was a moment. I think, I mean, I think it was, it was a really powerful moment for everyone at the Canterbury Museum in Christchurch, I think showing the work to everyone. I think particularly because the crew and everyone who worked in it lived through that earthquake as well and knowing those neighbourhoods and knowing people. So I think there was a, a sort of moment of catharsis there. So recent project, I guess, a, sort of my recent memory project, Allison, which was working with... Uh, the sons of a, a former homeowner of a holdout house that was sort of the last home remaining uh, in a neighbourhood here in, in Western Australia that was being demolished. And we sort of created this sound and light installation in collaboration with a um, musician, Trevor Powers, who used to go under um, Youth Lagoon um, and created this sort of installation work that was for the former residents and the community that used to live in this neighbourhood that was now demolished, um, particularly kind of a eulogy for that that one home um, before it was demolished as well. Um, and I think um, you can sort of meet these neighbours and meet these people and go through this journey with the community, but I think I think that one sort of almost took me by surprise, like how, I guess, um, sort of transformative that moment was, a quite a powerful moment as well, I think. Um, for me particularly, and I know for the for the for Jim and Gary, who were the, the sons of the, the former owners as well. As a filmmaker, you've been skirting with length. Do we see uh, a sort of a, a full full feature production coming out in the future? Is that something you'd like to work towards? I feel like it's a natural evolution. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think most of the the film works. I mean, I mean, all of the film works aren't online. Like they're sort of more designed for a gallery space. And I think what I yeah, yeah. loved about making well, a lot films, of making ofs in your Vimeo, but then there's also making ofs, but not the final film. And I think a lot, it's which I think people get confused and sometimes think the making of is the film I show in galleries. But there's these the films are like you know, they're, they're these long-running shots without people in them just documenting the houses. And I think they with these sort of big soundscapes and they're kind of designed as single-channel, three-channel works with these big 5-1 sound spaces so I can control everything and the experience of it in a gallery. And I think... Not to be watched in the back of a bus on your phone. <laughs> right, probably not not something you open one tab on. And also the, the pacing, I always think like you put something where there's a, you know, one-minute, two-minute, like slow-tracking shot that's meant to be massive and you suddenly have that on a tab next to people with the attention span of like Instagram reels. Like it's not the, there's at least a kind of a, a, um, a kind of decompression process once you go through the threshold of a gallery into a museum where you kind of, you can look at video the way that you might slowly look at a painting or slowly look at a foot. There's a slowing so you can experience moving image in a different way too, which is what I like about that space. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I the, the goal for a while has been to make something that is, um, sort of feature length and um, and I could actually send out as a sort of feature length sort of festival film as well. But it's very much in that non-narrative kind of uh, 
Godfrey Reggio Tarkovsky space where it's like poetics in cinema like I'm not it's it's certainly not going to be something that um, makes money I'll tell you that much <laughs> and if they try if they try to let me make money off it I'll tell them no <laughs> I'd be happy to make money from it but I, I, I'm it's it's certainly not um, uh, I don't know if that's the space that exists in God yeah I, I think it does in a weird way I'm sure it's out there People, people are making weird shit, making money. Oh, there's some great. There's I, I have to. There's a film called Taming the Garden that is just like a, just a total masterpiece, and it just follows these, this, um, these trees being uprooted in in Georgia, the the, the country, and being transported by sea, um, to this um, multi millionaire's garden. He's just buying trees from people. It's just all it is is watching this tree get uprooted and taken across the land, and then across this this giant open sea, and it's unbelievable like the most amazing thing i've ever seen but but also nothing no it's not, it's not going to play it at amc anytime soon yeah yeah if you're a fan of avatar 2 yeah. probably not <laughs> probably not this. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what is on the horizon for you then apart from some obscure cinematic niche art house film oh jesus yeah god um there's uh some new exhibitions i haven't confirmed them yet of the Dallison exhibition, I, which was the one with the, the light work and the holdout homeowners. Uh, the latest project I just finished the, uh, for uh, the photo focus uh, biennial in Cincinnati. Um, there's a new body of work that was just made called Penumbra, and that was with a survey exhibition called Disturbed Home. And then there was a, a book that came out with that. So I'm working with the curator there to hopefully tour that exhibition. Um, so hopefully confirming when that exhibition will have sort of a life touring around, which is the sort of film works, photography, and, and the, the new book as well. Um, I've got a small photo essay that I've been working on for the last uh, sort of 10 years of just every time I've seen graffiti on houses. So I've got this little photo book of um, graffiti on houses that I'm, uh, I'm going to hopefully release this year. Um, and then a, a larger written anthology, which is like commissioned essays looking at the history of markings on houses that I was sort of talking about, which is everything from, um, you know, ancient Rome to the plague markings and, and everything. So sort of that's sort of more of a, a research side of the studio, sort of trying to expand out the field around my practice, which is sort of what is this, this larger human history of mark making on homes and, and dwellings. Um, and then, yes, yeah, some film projects and installations. I'd, I've done a couple of lighting tests in um, in Ohio a couple of days ago, um, but for projects I'm not allowed to talk about just yet. I won't probe anymore. I feel like that's, okay. uh, that's a pretty extensive list. That's a busy, busy you you've got ahead of Staying you. Same busy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. Oh, yeah, and, and may, maybe coming to see you. I wanna, I'm, I'm going to bug you about coming out. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad we got to do this. Uh, I Yeah, I look forward to speaking with you again real soon. And, you know, all the best for the rest of the year. So you've got some amazing projects in the pipes. Who knows? Maybe that won't be the last we hear from us and Ian Strange this year. Let's wait and see. Hope you enjoyed this, our first episode of 2023. As always, thank you for your continued support for this project. If you've made it this far, it would be amazing if you guys could give us a follow or a share on Instagram, or if you're feeling particularly generous, why not write us a few nice words in the reviews section from wherever you're listening in from. That's it from me, Doug Gillen. Thank you once again to Ian for his time. We will be back with you real soon. Till then, take care of yourselves and each other.